forgot my snack. <laughs> Just kidding. Maybe that looks better. Well, good morning. And it's so neat. Do you know that the word hallelujah comes from the Hebrew word halal, which means to throw out and stretch out and lift out? And then when they lifted holy hands, uh, they, that's what hallelujah means. Praise the Lord in the sense of holy hands. There are seven different words in the uh, Hebrew words for the word praise in the Old Testament. And that's one of them. And uh, it's so sweet to, to learn that. I didn't know that before recently. So today we're not going to be talking about halal. We are going to be looking again at Jesus and we're his disciples. We're following him. And so uh, it's a wonderful time uh, together to think through God's lessons, the way the sermons that Jesus preached we're going to hear a sermon that Jesus preached. But before we get into that, I thought it would be important to say, uh, who's glad that spring is here? Yeah, yeah. How many gardeners? How many gardeners in the room? So, you know, we have a few people that aren't lazy. Um, you know, our family, our family enjoys the rewards of gardening. Uh, we all love the fruits of gardening. My wife does 99% of the work. Uh, but we all enjoy uh, gardening, and last spring, we're getting ready for this spring, and looking at pictures of last spring, I, I wanted to show you a progression of our backyard experiment last year. Uh, on the left, that's uh, Courtney's like, let's plant zucchinis and squash and stuff like that, and so there's our kid, and then the next, the picture in the middle is like after it started growing a little, and then it like overtook the side of our house, and um, we actually got some veggies that are, were as big as their arms. Uh, there's Samuel on the left holding up a zucchini that weighs as much as he does. And then there's our other kids. I wish I could zoom in. On the picture on the right, there's Charlie holding up his thing with his lip pointed out because he doesn't like to be told what to do. And I just, <laughs> it is amazing. That picture alone is like, that's the sermon today. We're, we're going to be addressing that face um, we also grew other plants and flowers, um, but like all living things, they don't flourish automatically. They don't flourish automatically. They need the right nutrients, they need the right environment, and so one day Courtney's uh, zinnias or zinnias, however you're supposed to say it, started to die, and they started to look like that, so you see the wilted, withered down look, and uh, I was nervous because I thought something she really enjoys is about to die, and, and that means, you know, I'm going to be sad too. And so uh, they were looking like that, and it turns out they just needed a drink of life-giving water. They require a lot of water, and so we gave them water. That's actually a picture of our zinnias in our backyard, and uh, you give them some water. They look like they were dead. I mean, like, it's kind of like the movie Princess Bride, nearly dead, almost dead. They were just like that, and then they came right back to life, and... Um, they needed something that they didn't have, and you know what? God can do that for us. God can do that for us when we are unhealthy and our hearts are withered and dry. And that's what the passage is about this morning. It points out the ugliness of our hearts when they're shriveled up and the damage that it causes when it goes untreated. We're going to see Jesus, we're going to hear Jesus' sermon about that process going on inside of us. And so look with me at Mark chapter 3. We're going to primarily look at Mark chapter 3 verses 1 through 6, but this same story is in Mark's account and Luke's account and Matthew's account. And so it's in Matthew chapter 12 verses 9 through 14 and Luke chapter 6 verses 6 through 11. We're going to look at some of those. We're going to go back and forth because we want a whole picture. 
We want a complete, wholesome picture of the sermon. So I'll begin in Mark 3, but you're going to see other passages in there as well. Mark chapter 3, verse 1. Jesus entered the synagogue again, and a man was there who had a shriveled hand. And Luke, in his account, the physician, remember Luke's like a doctor, the medical doctor, he points out that it's his right hand. Now that's significant, why? Because that was a man's working hand. That was his best hand. That's how he made his money. That's how he did his craft. So that this means that this man's working hand was shriveled. Uh, He had a case of severe paralysis of his right hand, and it would have looked something like this. This uh, picture is a picture of a man's withered hand. What happens is the tendons and ligaments connecting muscle tissue to the bone, you, there's, there's tissue in between, uh, sinew as it's called and something. When it gets shriveled up and it dries up, it doesn't have the appropriate blood and water to it, it constricts and it gets stiff and it hardens and it shrivels up and it makes it to where you can't open your hand, you can't use your hand. So it just looks almost like it's petrified in a sense. And that's what happened to this this man. Now, according to Mark's account, the verb he uses, this perfect past participle idea, is that we know that the injury there, this deformity, it wasn't congenital, meaning he wasn't born with this. He didn't have this from birth, which means this would have happened from a disease like a leprosy type disease or an accident. But this happened to him. What would you do if you lost your ability to work if you became disabled and you were unable to use your, your craft to do your thing. I can't even write normal with my left hand, let alone do something like leather work or masonry or something crafty. They use their hands a lot. Try being one-handed and farm. I'm not talking about driving a tractor. They didn't have those. Try taking care of cattle and beasts and horses with one hand and an injured hand. How would you feel? That's the setting of this story. How would you feel if you were the one that needed this help? Because this man really needed help. And on the Sabbath day, the equivalent of their church day, he was in the synagogue looking for something. What do you think he was looking for? The passage actually doesn't tell us. Why was he there? We don't know exactly. But we know he was looking for something. He wasn't there on accident. Some of you are here this morning You may not even fully understand why you're here. But God is wanting, he's wanting to restore you. He's wanting to do something in your heart. So he's in there on their church day, but the men who were in charge weren't interested in helping him out. That's the bad news. They had another agenda. Their focus was on someone else. Look at verse 2. In order to accuse him, they, which they are the scribes and Pharisees, were watching Jesus closely to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath. They're watching Jesus, not the man with the withered hand. They're watching Jesus to see if he's going to heal them, so that, according to Luke, so that they could find a charge against him. The religious leaders wanted to find a reason to put Jesus in jail. Now, what has Jesus done? Have you ever thought about that, why Jesus died within three years of starting his ministry? Here's a man who all he did was heal people and tell the truth. All he did was set people free, save them, redeem them, gave them new life, and yet he was murdered within three years of showing up. 
Why? Because the people who were in charge loved their tradition, loved their ways, loved themselves more than they would love him. And the same is true for the world. They hated him because they didn't love him. They loved other things more than him, and they wanted to get him in jail. So according to Matthew's account, they asked him a question, verse 10, in Matthew 12. So remember, Mark chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, Luke chapter 6, verses 6 through 11, Matthew chapter 12, verses 9 through 14. So we go to Matthew's account. It shows us in verse 10 that they begin by asking him a question. In order to accuse him, they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Now, they're asking him this because they want him to break their customs, their traditions. See, if you walk into a religious setting with religious people that are used to certain traditions and customs, and you say, hey, is it best to, uh, to wear a suit on Sunday? Is it best to do this or to sing this or to do it that way? Is it best to use this instrument? You get a little bit of division going on because there's some people that say, no, 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 this way. And there's other people say, no, 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 that way. And you get people divided. And the Pharisees wanted to get him in a sticky situation in which he would get people against him because they were already against him. And so they ask, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? According to some of the Jewish traditions, some of the writings we have of that time, there were some rabbis, most rabbis taught that it's not okay to heal. Uh, some would even let you pray for disabled people on the Sabbath because that was the holy day. You can't work and that's work. And so they wouldn't let them. But some rabbis allowed you to heal only if it was life-threatening. Only if someone was going to die could you do anything about it. So that means that it was illegal in their system, in their religious structure, with their rituals and traditions. It was against their law to even set a bone, a broken bone on the Sabbath, to tie a bandage, to administer medicine. It was illegal for them. And so they asked them, can you heal? And what's crazy to me is the Pharisees knew that he wanted to heal and that he was able to heal. Are you catching this? His enemies knew that he had the power to set people free, yet they were still his enemies. They knew he would heal. They knew he would get himself in trouble because they've seen him do this before. This isn't his first miracle. And, but it went against their customs. That's why they hated it. It went against their tradition. It went against their forms. It went against their ways. It went against what they were used to. It went against what they were taught as this is how you kind of live your life as a good Jewish person. We're not Jews in here. Most, I, I, maybe there is a Jew in here. Most of us probably are not. So for us, don't think Jewish. Think just tradition, religion. It was against their religious custom. That's where we would be. It was against the normal, the normal ordinary way of doing things. So what I want you to notice there is that their focus was on saving their traditions, not helping their neighbors. Their focus was on saving their traditions, not helping their neighbors. That's why they were focused on him. That's why they wanted to accuse him. That's why they asked the question. And it was their obsession with tradition that was a symptom of a missing relationship, a lacking relationship. People are really hungry for forms and traditions and I, I, give me something to do. The reason why they're so hungry for that is because they don't have relationship. I'll give you an example. You know, if I'm meeting people I don't really know, but maybe I know of them and they have a good reputation and I want to benefit from them and I want to benefit them as well, I am formal. I have etiquette. There's normalities. I don't dress a certain way. I don't sneeze. I, I do certain things. If you're my good friend and you're in my living room, I'm not paying attention to all that. I might, I might take my socks off right in front of you, you know. 
I might, I might, uh, you know, I might that. I might do that in front of you. Because when you know someone and you have a healthy, good relationship, you don't need all of that etiquette. But they don't have that. All they have is their laws and their tradition, and that was what they were hungry for. And I know we've talked about this for two weeks, but I want you to pay attention. This is what's in the Gospels for weeks and weeks and weeks long. All these sermons that Jesus taught, he was hitting the same idea because these religious people, it took a while for them to realize, wait a minute, maybe I've got a little bit of thing going on inside me that's not right. So Jesus kept preaching this sermon. They lacked relationship, so they were desperately hungry for tradition, and Jesus didn't provide that. He went against that, and they were upset, so mad that they wanted to kill him. So Jesus answers their question with a question. Verse 11 in Matthew 12. He replied to them, Who among you, if he had a sheep that fell into a pit on the Sabbath, wouldn't take hold of it and lift it out? A person is worth far more than a sheep. He's like, if you guys had a beast of burden, if you had an animal, anybody has an animal that they love? Anybody? Okay, who was surprised that you actually ended up loving the animal? Okay, that would be someone like me. When I hear people like, uh, like, oh, I had to take my animal to the vet and it only cost me $800, I'm like, $800? I'm like, dude, I could dig a hole quick for $800. I, $800, that's a lot of money, you know? My brother, who's one of the, he's a miser if there ever is one. He's so careful. He got an animal, you know, he didn't think he'd ever love it. Ended up taking it to the vet. Have you meet someone, they're like, oh, it's just an animal, I don't care. And then like three months later, it's like, did you just pay $2,000 for hip replacement surgery for your Datsun or whatever that is, that weenie dog? Did you just do all that? It's amazing. It's because you love it. Okay, Jesus is saying, imagine this is an animal that you love or an animal that's providing you income. It's an animal that you're using for work so that you could take care of your family. Imagine that this is your animal. Now, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath day, you would take it out so it wouldn't die because you either care about that animal or you care about what it's providing you. Now, how much more important is a human being? You hypocrites. How much more important is a lost soul, a person, a needy person? Jesus is saying, this man is in a pit, and you guys aren't willing to lift him out because of your customs and tradition and formalities. You're not willing to lift a finger to help them. And people yet are more invaluable than animals. Verse 3, back in Mark. So you're going back to Mark chapter 3, verse 3. He told the man with the shriveled hand, stand before us. Now this was a big ask, by the way. This man didn't want to be the attention, the center of attention. He wasn't looking for trouble. He wasn't looking for a fight. This man wasn't in charge. The Pharisees were. This man didn't control his reputation. The Pharisees did. And Jesus calls him. He says, I want you to stand right here in the midst of us. If you've ever been to a Jewish synagogue, that's the one place you do not want to be unless you're the guy in charge. Otherwise, you're in trouble. It's like getting called to the principal's office. You don't want to be that person. So he stands he tells them, stand before us. Then he said to them, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. Breaks my heart. They were silent. They couldn't answer them, him. You know what would happen if they answered the truth? You know what would happen if they said the truth? They would expose themselves. 
Of course it's good to help someone, to save someone, to pay the cost. What would it take for you to help somebody else? Of course it's right, but you know what that meant? If they say yes, that means they have to change. Has anyone ever asked you to change your traditions or your customs? What did it feel like? Has anyone ever questioned the way that you normally do things or your parents taught you to do? What did that feel like? Not when you were 16, that was easy. Like imagine you're 30. What does that feel like? He's asking them if they're willing to change what they're used to to do what he wants, which is to do good and to save life. But it is a big ask, and he knows it. It's so hard, some people would walk away crying, not willing to give up what they know to follow Jesus. That's what he's asking. And they were silent because they were cowards. They wouldn't be willing to change. Are we willing to change whatever it takes to follow Jesus and whatever he wants? Is that the prayer of our hearts? Whatever you want, God, you change it, I'll do it. Is that the attitude? Is that the posture that we have? And verse 5, that I, if you don't know, Jesus is the Son of God. He's God in the flesh. When you see Jesus, you see God. When you hear his pleas, his cries, his th- that you are looking at the heart of God. You're seeing the one who created the heavens and the earth. You are actually witnessing the, the God, the one and only true God. It says that, and after looking around at them with anger, he was grieved at the hardness of their heart. He's looking around in their eyes, and you know what he's not seeing? Humility, compassion, a willingness to say, I don't need any of these things. I don't need what I'm used to. I don't need what they're used to. I don't need any of these things. What I need is you. You give the word. You give the direction. I will follow it if it costs me my life. Now, it's hard to give up your life. But how did these people not see the hurting people around them? How did they not know that their customs were keeping hurt and lost people from coming to God, from being drawn to Him? How did they not see that they were putting burdens and walls and hindrances so that people who don't know the laws, they don't know the rules, they don't have the customs, they didn't grow up like that. How did they not see that they were the very cause keeping these people from coming to Christ? And it grieved them because they they didn't care. They loved their tradition so much, they didn't care. When I was a pastoral resident in the summer between my junior and senior year of college, I was just barely 21, I served at a church for a few months, and this was in Michigan, Lincoln Park, Michigan. And the church building was situated right outside of a public park, a big long field, trees and openness. People would play frisbee and football and everything else. It was a big long field. And there was a parking lot where we would park to get inside the church. And it's a church where I wear a suit every Sunday and I'm a resident. I'm a young guy. I don't know much. And there's a lead pastor. Well, anyway, one day I'm walking by the field to go to church. This is a Sunday morning. This is church day. It's early, right? All the hooligans are asleep, but the church people, they're getting ready to go to church. And I'm walking by this field, and I see a woman in a dress laying down in the grass. And it just didn't look right to me. Something just looked wrong. So I walked over there. And as soon as I came upon her, I realized 
that she was not well, that she had likely been there all night, actually. It became apparent that she had been involved with drugs and other immoralities that I can't speak details to, but it was very obvious that she wasn't by herself the whole night, but she was left there. And I don't know what to do. I'm young, and I see her, and I start talking to her. And there's a man in our church just happened to be walking by at the same church. I call out to him. He comes over. We lift her up. It's clear. She's a little lucid. She's not, uh, or she's not lucid. I can't remember that, the definition of that word. But she's not thinking clearly. She's not very clear. She's not very coherent. Thank you, crowd. And, uh, and so the guy who I call over there, he's an older man. He must have been 40. When you're 20, it seems that way. Now it's like, this is me. But at, when you're 21, you're like, you know, 40. You know. So he's 40. He's arrived. He's past halfway. And so anyway, forget that part. Just listen. This is real. This is a real story. This is a true story. He sees what I see, and we agree that I need to go get help. So I run inside. Remember, this is before like cell phones were as big as they are now. So we didn't have like devices on us and all that. So I run inside the church, and I meet the senior pastor of the church, the guy who's my supervisor. And I go to him and I explain him the situation. And I'm obviously, weird, you know, I'm anxious and I'm, this is a need. Takes him a few seconds. But he, uh, his reply to me was, I've got to preach and I can't do anything to help you. And I was explicitly told, and don't bring her in here. And he left. And I knew that it was wrong, but I didn't know what to do. I mean, I've seen trauma. I've seen abuse. I've been in drug circles before. I've, it's not that it was new, but even if you've been in that situation, you don't know what to do if you've never been trained. So I walk down the stairs outside the building, and I go to walk past her because I, I don't know what to do. And I, I ask her, I say, is there someone I can get to help you? I remember asking her, is there someone I can call? Is there someone we can get to come help you? And she looked at me with this face of disappointment and despair turned around and walked away and wouldn't answer to my calls. And I stood there feeling sick to my stomach. I go back, I'm walking back to the church and I realize now even older, there's, there's a church service that needs to happen. There's tithers there. There's a program. There's an agenda. There's, I, I can't be interrupted for that. I wish... I've wished many times that I could go back to that moment and ask that senior pastor, what if this was one of your two daughters? Would we have done the same thing that day? Would we have not done whatever we could to help her? Would we not have stopped church and told people, hey, this is going to be a different Sunday. If you're new with us, it's not this way every time. But can you guys stop and pray because a person's life is more valuable than a program? than a tradition. Could he not have stood up before his people and been honest and said, listen, there's a situation I need to get some deacons or elders or somebody to help with before we start the service, and I'm asking you to do something different today and pray. You need to pray. There's someone's life is at stake. I'll tell you what, Grace, as long as I'm here, what happened back then will never happen in a church that I'm a part of. It will never happen. This is not a movie theater. This is not a carnival. You do not pay to come in here. It's a worship service. 
But how could we miss it if someone falls into our lap that is desperately needing help and yet we look with critical eyes, silent, not willing to say anything or do anything? Because that would mess up a Sunday that honestly, a lot of those people in that church has experienced the same program for tens, decades, dozens of years. Could they not have stopped it for this lady? I'll never know what happened to that lady. But I've never gotten over that. And I don't want that to ever happen anywhere that I'm a part of. A person's life is too valuable to be stuck to some tradition or formality or agenda or program. Who cares what time it is? Who cares what order people were expecting? Are we willing to give our lives and our preferences and our comforts to Jesus and Him alone and say, you do whatever you want to do, I belong to you? Because if that's not the attitude of your heart, Jesus is not Lord of your life, period. He's Lord when He dictates every aspect of your life. That's when He's Lord. Jesus looked around at them, and he was angry and grieved. Finally, I know why. And he was angry at the hardness of their hearts. You know, Jesus uses this phrase that's used before, the hardness of the heart. There's actually a common description. When he says that their hearts were hardened, the idea is that uh, a hardened heart uh, describes a willful rejection to God's authority, his love, or his truth. It's a willful rejection. I will not receive his authority. I won't let him tell me. I won't let him dictate. I will not follow him or his love. I won't receive his love and I won't give his love. A hardened heart. I won't receive it and I won't share it either. And his truth, it's a willful rejection of his truth, which which later, the last point, that's what he points to in in verse 6 of Mark 3. It's a willful rejection of God's truth. I won't receive it and I won't share it. This man had a shriveled hand, but they had a shriveled heart. You just couldn't see it with the naked eye. One of my sons got a a medical toy, like a a skeleton body with all, you know, vital organs, and you piece it together in this clear thing, and it's really cool. It came with a book that explained the organs. Funny, it didn't didn't come with uh, an appendix, um, which that son doesn't have one either, actually, right now. Um, But he he was playing with it, and he was telling me about... uh, about the lungs. And so he's reading this book. He goes, Dad, do you know what a lung looks like in a smoker? And I said, I do. I do. He's like, it looks black and rotten and just dirty. And I was like, I know, because smoking's unhealthy. Smoking's not good for you, you know. I smoked when I was a teenager a number of times, and I regret it. Why did I do that? And people, we all have habits. We all have things. I, I try to explain to my kids, you're not better than someone else just because you don't do one thing. You have your smoking thing. You'll have your thing We all have habits and we have unhealthy parts of us and we have, you know, we just have things that are not good for us and we we all have that in our lives in different ways and, you know, that's unhealthy. And it made me think of this sermon and I wish I could, I wanted to bring a heart that was shriveled up and dead and then a a live heart, but I didn't want to go to prison, so I I did something different. Uh, I got got some friends of mine to uh, make this apple. There might be a picture of it on the thing. There's this, uh, there's, there's, these two apples right here. One is, uh, one is shriveled up, and actually it probably tastes good, but don't think that. Pretend it's rotten. It was put in the oven for like 15 hours. 
uh, and the other is a healthy apple. And the idea with these apples, I wish I could show you a heart, and I wish you would always remember, oh, that shriveled heart looks so bad, I don't want that. Uh, but, you know, that's against the law. So here's an apple, and some of you eat apples, you'll see apples in the store. I want you to think every time you ever see an apple, how is my heart doing? Is it shriveled up? Because here's the truth. None of us are always aware of when and where our heart is hardened. All of us need sanctification. All of us. For each one of us, there are going to be moments where we need to ask God, God, change my heart, examine, show me, where am I, where am I lacking in your, where am I not reflecting you in that way that would grieve you, that would bring you to anger? Because just like with them, Jesus is grieved and upset when we refuse to help. So the lesson in the story is really about the wrongness of the Pharisees. It's the wrongness. If you look at these passages, the big highlight is where the Pharisees were. But what Jesus is wanting you and me to do is to put ourselves in the shoes of the Pharisees and to recognize that we can be that way too. That we can have things that are uncomfortable that we're not willing to let go of for God's higher calling and His purpose. We can miss things. We can be irrational. We can totally miss it. And so Jesus is God the Son. It's God in the flesh. The very nature of God, the invisible God, all of His attributes, it all dwelt within Him. And so when you see Jesus grieved and angry, what God is giving you a window and picture of is what makes God angry, what makes Him grieve. You get, you get the heart of God. And so... Jesus is grieved and God is grieved when, number one, we refuse to help, when we lack compassion. This is what it looks like when you have a shriveled heart. You refuse to help. So ask yourself, what convictions or biases do I have that hinder me from caring for a person in need? What customs or traditions keep me from sharing and extending the love of of Christ, the love of Jesus, the same love that he showed me, what makes me uncomfortable that I'm not willing to flex on because, no, this is my custom? I'm not talking about traditions are not bad. Habits are not bad. I have habits. We talk about habits of grace every year. Religious habits are not bad. That's, that's not the point. The point is, where does it fall in your priority and where does it fall in what you share with others? When you share Christ with others, do you attach those formalities to it and say you really won't be spiritual unless? So ask yourself, what, what is it? What is it outside of Christ that, that I attach him to? And, and how is God wanting to change my heart? You know, what, you know, if you ever feel like, oh, what can't mess up the church program or what can't alter tradition or, or maybe be more personal when you refuse to help, because that's a hard statement. Could you even say, God, when do I refuse to help? That's hard to say because that's convicting. But ask yourself, do, do you say, oh, I'm too busy. My calendar's too full. I can't do that. It's too much. It costs too much. Jesus is grieved and upset when we refuse to help. And second, what you see in the story is Jesus is grieved and upset when we refuse to obey. So if you look at the Pharisees in contrast to the man with the shriveled hand, what do you notice? legalistic, blind, hardened hearts versus a scared man who's willing to step out in faith and do the impossible. I want you to look at the difference between them and the shriveled hand man. Verse 5, after looking around at them with anger, in Mark chapter 3, verse 5, he was grieved at the hardness of their hearts and told the man, stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out 
and his hand was restored. It was only after he obeyed that his hand was restored. Think about what it took for this man to obey. And I think Luke points it out the most clearly. So I'm going to go to Luke chapter 6, same story, just Luke's account. In verse 8 it says, But Jesus knew their thoughts and told the man with the shriveled hand, Get up and stand here. So what did he do? So he got up and he stood there. Notice that obedience. Notice how the man with the shriveled hand obeyed Jesus, but the Pharisees did not. Then verse 10, after looking around at them all, he told to him, stretch out your hand. He did, and his hand was restored. Now, let me just ask you a simple question. After the picture I showed you and explanation I gave you, what's the one thing the man with the shriveled hand cannot do? It's stretch out his hand. That is impossible. Medically, physically, by the laws of science, impossible. The one thing the man could not do that he would be so afraid if anyone asked him to do was use that hand. And Jesus says, stretch out your hand, not your arm. Stretch out your hand. Jesus asks him to do the impossible, and that man has a decision. Am I going to step out in faith? Am, is Not just stretching my hand, but stretching my faith. Am I willing to obey Jesus? What is God asking you to do? with your life, with your family, in this community, what is he asking you to do? And are you willing to do the impossible and stretch out your hand and do what feels impossible? I'm just asking the Holy Spirit. I've been asking him, God, would you convict them? Is there something that you want them to do? And I want you all to just take a pause and a moment to reflect. Is there something that God is asking you to do that you know it's the Spirit that you're afraid to do? That feels impossible to do. It's a change. It's an openness to something. It's a difference. It's doing something different to, to help others. Is, is there something that the Holy Spirit's asking you to do that you, unlike the, the man with a shriveled hand, are thinking, I can't do that. That's impossible. Ask God what that is. Ask God to reveal that. And be willing, be willing to step out. Don't forget the symptom of a hardened heart is disobedience. That's the symptom of a hardened heart, a shriveled heart. Willfully rejecting God's authority, His love, and His truth. Not receiving it and not giving it. And we grieve God and give Him reason to be angry at us when we refuse to obey Him. When we willfully reject His commands. And lastly, Jesus is grieved and upset when we reject the truth. Look at the last verse in, in Mark and Luke's account. Mark chapter 3, verse 6, Luke 6, verse 11. Immediately the Pharisees went out and started plotting with the Herodians against him how they might kill him. They, however, were filled with rage and started discussing with one another what they might do to Jesus. I wanted to include Luke's account because that word for rage is only used twice in the whole Bible, here and in 2 Timothy. It's actually a compound word. Just like atheist means no God, this word means no mind. It's like a uh, nuos or anoia when you put it together because you have to change the ending. But it means no mind. They were so upset with Jesus for challenging their customs and their traditions and making them change their lives. They were so upset that they lost rationale and reason. They couldn't think clearly. That So much so that they wanted to kill him. Now think about it for a moment. How did the Pharisees miss it? How hypocritical can you be? They're nitpicking him for healing on the Sabbath because that would be breaking the fourth commandment not to work on the Sabbath, which really it doesn't break that commandment, but that's how they thought of it. 
They were nitpicking that so much, but they were willing to murder an innocent man on the Sabbath. Think about how crazy and insane that is. What drove them to this madness, to this no mind, this rage? They were filled with it because they loved their traditions so much. They loved their customs and their ways so much. And they weren't willing to hand it over to Jesus. They weren't even willing to question it. Here's what's interesting. Jesus didn't have every Jew live a non-Jewish life. He didn't do that. His purpose wasn't to say, don't have traditions. Everybody has traditions. Don't have customs. We have customs even if we think when we make new customs to not have old customs, those are customs. His point was the priority. Where do you put those? You still got to be a human being. You still got to have habits and things that preferences that you like, but where do they fall in line? Are they so important to you that you won't do ministry and help others and obey and show compassion and be willing to change for the greater for someone else? Are you not willing to think of someone else more highly than you think of yourself because we just can't do it that way? What in your life would be hindering you from, from thinking rationally and in your right mind? We're not always aware. The other passage is 2 Timothy 3, verses 8 through 9. I won't read the whole thing, but... Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth. Men of depraved mind, rejected and regarded the, tr- the faith. Re- think of those, those terms. Opposed the truth, depraved mind, but they will, make, they will not make further progress for their folly. And that word folly is the same word. It's only used in the Bible twice. This is the second place. Their folly will be obvious to all, just as Janus and Jambres' folly was also. It's a picture of willfully rejecting the truth, of being stubborn of not being able to receive. Ask God, is there any area in your life where you are not receiving his truth or obeying his command? And just like the man with the shriveled hand, Jesus will restore you. If you're willing to give it to him, he will restore you and give you new life. He will correct it. He will speak to your heart. He will comfort you. He has a power that raises dead men from the grave. He can raise you from the dead. He, just like those zinnias, zinnias in the beginning. He can bring you back to life, but you have to go to him and say, God, reveal my heart. I want to give this to you. I'm willing to stretch my faith and do what feels uncomfortable. Whatever you're calling me to do, I'm willing to do it. Identify a person that needs your compassionate help and make a plan to help them. Don't put it off. Think about Jesus' example. My favorite question about this text in Mark chapter 3 came at the very end of my study. Here's my question. Why didn't Jesus just wait 24 hours to heal the man? Think about it. There's six days out of the week where you can heal somebody and you don't get flack for it. He wouldn't have broken the law if he would have just waited less than 24 hours. If Jesus just would have played the game and just would have been, you know, if he would have just waited 24 hours to heal the man, the man could have been healed and no one would have fought over it and it would be fine and and he would get likes and shares and people would subscribe to him and it would be great. Why didn't he wait 24 hours? It's because he doesn't want you to wait. He wants to show you the priority and the prominence of his mission and his call to seek and to save the lost, which you are now his hands and feet to go do the same. Don't put it off another day. It may not cost you tomorrow. And you may think, oh, I'll just do it a different way. Do it now. Don't put it off. Don't wait. 
Don't wait to help. Don't wait to obey. Don't wait to receive the truth. Some of you, the only thing keeping you from something amazing that God wants to do through you is you just taking that first step and saying, no matter what, I'll follow you. That's all it takes. Just like that man with the withered hand. Go to the center of the room, stand in the middle, and stretch out your hand. If you're doing it for him, he's going to restore you. I want to end by sending us out with our almost usual sending. We're a little later today than usual. But I, I want to give an invitation too. If, if you guys would stand, please, for our sending. I know this is your favorite part. I can tell by how you just almost stood up quickly. <laughs> that man did not know what to expect when he entered the synagogue that day. And here's my question. Some of you don't know why you're here this morning. And you're here because Jesus wants to restore you. I know there's got to be someone in this room that is not a believer. You're not a Christian. And you would be afraid to tell it. And I'm not going to ask you to stand in the center of this room. But I want you to ask, why does God, why does Jesus have you here right in this very moment? You hearing his word, seeing his heart of compassion. What does he want for your life if it's not to save you? If you're not a Christian, you could become one right now. The Bible says it so clearly. If you believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead, if you put your faith in Jesus and say, he's the one, it's convicting my heart, it's changing me, I, I sense it, it's like a burden, like a weight. If you know that you're a sinner, if you know that you've broken God's law, if you know that you're not right with God because of things you've done or haven't done, if the Holy Spirit has convicted you of sin, judgment, and righteousness, if you know that you have sin, if you know that he's going to judge you, if you know that you're not righteous like he is, the invitation is to call out to him. Ask Jesus right now in your heart, God, will you please forgive me of my sin? Will you make me right with you? Only you can save and restore. Only you can deliver me. Only you could truly save me. If you mean that in your heart this morning, God will save you. You will be saved. Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. For the rest of you, we've got our prayer work to do. Would you pray along with me for this year of 2021, asking God, would you lift the spiritual darkness from our community? Would you use us to go out into the darkest places, the poorest places, the most hurting places, the most inconvenient places in Newton and the surrounding areas? Would you use us to go pray, to go prayer walk, to go prayer drive, to go witness, to do summer quest? Would you pray along with your pastor? I have no power on my own. But if we pray together in one spirit that God would lift the spiritual darkness and revive our hearts, and if we mean it, if we're willing to say, God, do whatever you want, change whatever you want, have your way with us. If you humble yourselves before God like that, I'm telling you, he will do things you cannot even imagine. He'll do more than what you ask. But pray in your heart that God would lift spiritual darkness and use us to go out to be a true church of welcoming people that are unlike us, that are different than us, and being okay to staying the same. I can stay like me and they can be like them. But loving them with the love of Christ, being willing to heal on the Sabbath, if that's what it takes, to break custom, if that's what it takes, if that's your heart attitude, if that's your heart prayer, Jesus will revive 
and save lives and restore. There were some cities that Jesus went to and he didn't heal them because of their lack of faith. Not that they didn't believe that God existed. They were believers. But they didn't love him and they weren't willing to give them their lives, everything. Their life, their mom. If you do not love your father and mother and brother and sister and wife and yes, even your own life, you cannot be my disciples. If we pray together in unity that God would use us, he will. And so I want to send us out with this sending. This is my commission to you. Now go in the power of the Holy Spirit. In all that you do, love God fully. Wherever you are, love people sacrificially and always look for opportunities to faithfully lead others to do the same. You are the church. Now go be the church. Grace, I love you. We are sent.